So God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for constantly encouraging us, challenging us, bringing us to you through your word. We just pray that you would do the same thing today. God, would you please lead us to even more dependence on you, Christ. God, we love you so much. Amen. So there was a movement started by a man named Nikolaus von Zinzendorf. I'm going to call him Nicholas because of my own pronunciation skills. So Nicholas lived in the early 1700s, and he came from a really noble family in Austria. He was set to inherit money and land and social status. Uh, he could have laid back his whole life and just entered into the elite because of the uh, richness of his family. But Nicholas had a moment in his life where he met Jesus, and everything changed for him. He, he got this passion and desire to become a preacher and a pastor one day, but his family convinced him not to do that because they said it would be too much of a class demotion. So he listened to his family, and he took this role with the king of Saxony during this time in the early 1700s. Now, at the same time, there were many Christians that were being persecuted by the Catholic Church. This included Anabaptists and Mennonites. So in order to help, Nicholas, in 1722, used the land that he inherited to create this refuge for these German-speaking Christians from Moravia. There was 300 to 400 of these Christians that all lived in this place that he provided for them. They had safety, and they had a place to practice their faith. But the problem was, this went really poorly at first. Each person had their own flavor of Christianity, so there was just this constant tension among the people that were living in this place. Uh, Nicholas had a passion that they would have unity among each other, so he quit his role with the king. He entered into community with them, and he started going door to door to each family to pray with them and to beg them to have unity with the other Christians around them. After doing this for a while... In July of 1727, they created this thing called the Moravian Covenant for Christian Living. This was the beginning of the Moravian movement. And all leads to this moment in August of the same year where these Christians who were persecuted, who had much tension with each other, spent 10 hours in prayer and community, repentance, worship, celebration, a day that they called the Moravian Pentecost. For them, it was this moment where they felt the love of Jesus that they've never felt in a way like that. And they didn't want to keep it to themselves. So they started a few things. Uh, the first one was they started doing these prayer meetings. They intentionally made a system for hourly prayer to be consistent and never unbroken. So there would be someone praying. The moment they would be done, someone else would enter in. And they kept this system going for a hundred years of unbroken prayer. Not only that, but they had such a passion for people to know Jesus that they started doing mission work. And not like, let's go to Hawaii to <laughs> preach the gospel. They heard about these British islands where there were slaves. Slaves that started hearing about Jesus. So two of the Moravians sold themselves into slavery so that they can preach the gospel to these people. And thousands of them became believers in Jesus because of that step that they took. Now, I think to myself, if I live during that time and I know nothing about Jesus and I saw this community of people, what would I see? 
I would see people unified under covenant with each other, a unity that does not exist in, a, in the world in that way. I would see people who were so confident in their God that they would never cease to pray. I would see people so passionate about others that they are willing to literally give their lives for the sake of their neighbor. And I would have to ask myself, who are these people? Why are they this way? And how can I be part of this? The church, the community of Jesus followers should always be living in such a way that causes the world to ask these questions. Who are these people? Why are they living this way? How can I be part of that? John's vision continues this week to display something to us. In a broken world, there is a community of people that stands out. Those who follow Jesus. In his vision today, we are left with this truth. This is a big idea for today. We are called to be a community of hope in a world of despair. We are called to be a community of hope in a world of despair. Today what we'll be doing is we're going to look at uh, chapter 6 and we're going to see what the Christians at their time would have read. We're going to talk a little bit about the realities of our present world displayed in the same way. And then we're going to look at our part to play in this community as Christians. So as we go into chapter 6, uh, let me just start by saying this. Uh, I, I'm part of an RC with my wife, and we try to be creative with the way that we ask questions. So instead of just saying like, hey, how's your summer? We did, how's your summer? Or what was your favorite moment of summer? Draw in a picture, and we're all going to guess what it is. So I'm going to show you how artistically gifted my RC is. So here's one of the pictures that was drawn. Super impressive. So we're all guessing. We're like, what is it? What is it? Was it a wedding? Like, no, it wasn't a wedding. Was it a Cruise Brothers concert? No, it wasn't a Cruise Brothers concert. What was it? And he starts describing it to us. He's like, me and my wife were in Costa Rica. We're like, whoa, that's pretty impressive already. And he's like, we're at this place and these Costa Rican grandmas just start dancing with us. We're like, wait, what? It's like, we're doing these Costa Rican dances. And we're like, this is really cool. And he's like, it was amazing. And we love them. And they're our best friends now. And it's just, and we're like, wow, we would have never guessed that. We could have guessed forever. We would have never guessed that that was what happened. So for us, in order to know what was happening in this picture, we needed to get into the shoes of the person that was seeing it first. We couldn't skip that step. And I think, especially with today's passage, part of the reason revelations can be misinterpreted often is that we skip this step. Like, we don't take time to put on the shoes of John to see what would he have seen when he's seeing the vision. We jump to now and we say, there's four horsemen, I saw X-Men, and this is what I think it is. But we need to go back and see what would John have seen what would the original Christians that received this letter have seen when they read chapter 6? So it starts off this way. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. If you weren't here last week, what he's talking about is there is this scroll and there are seven seals on it. Imagine like wax seals. And the only one that can open up these seals is the Lamb of God. It is Jesus himself. And each time he opens up one of the seals, another part of reality is being displayed. Specifically, how God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So imagine, 
each seal is being opened up, and there's another picture of reality. So the first six seals, instead of reading all of them throughout, let me just show you them on the screen. Here are the first six seals that are opened. Uh, seal number one is this white horse. Uh, many people say that is a military conquest. Specifically, it's a picture of the enemies of Rome. These Christians are under the Roman Empire. You know, part of their temptation is that they are getting seduced by the power of Rome. And the white horse is displayed, those that maybe have the ability to conquer Rome. The red horse is violence, specifically war. Uh, seal number three is the black horse. And this is famine, economic hardship. And the emphasis is people don't have what they need and they have an abundance of the things that they don't need. Seal number four is the pale horse. This is sickness that leads to death. Seal number five are these souls that are crying out to Jesus saying, when will you avenge us? And it's a picture of the persecution of Christians. And seal number six are these natural disasters. The picture is that all the earthly powers fall. Now, when we look at these, it could be easy to think, I knew it. The end of the world is coming right now. Look at the famine in the world. Look at the wars all around. Look at the persecution of Christians. Jesus is coming back now. But we need to take a moment to see what the original Christians reading this would have thought. If this passage is about the future for the original readers then we might think, look at these things happening, the end is coming. But if this had nothing to do with the future and more to do with their present, then it changes the picture that's wanting to be displayed. Ian Paul says it this way. For John's first readers, these verses describe a world they know and live in. A world marked by periodic famine and shortage. One of chronic disease and early death a world in which earthquakes bring sudden destruction and devastation. John is not yet disclosing to them an unknown future, but revealing the reality about the present. The description of the seven seals was not meant to be a description of something that was going to happen one day in the future, but was meant to open their eyes to what's happening in the present. A couple weeks, and this is the reason why, a couple weeks ago, Josh was talking about how the biggest temptation for the Christians was the seduction of the Roman Empire. So much so that they were fighting more for the goodness of Rome than for the kingdom of God. They were finding their hope more in a nation that was ruling over them than in Jesus. So what John needed to do, or what Jesus needed to do through this revelation and through this picture was to display reality and to disrupt their illusion. That they could find hope in a nation or an empire or a flourishing economy. There was, Rome at its best was just a distraction of reality for them. They needed to realize the world is still really broken. Revelation 6 was meant to wake up the Christians and shatter any illusions that they had. For them, they needed to end reading this and say, oh, this is this is really how the world is. So if that's the case for them, what does this mean for us? I, I think of this, I was a high school pastor for years at my old church. And the one thing I really appreciated about high schoolers was um, they were really upfront about everything. Now, they weren't that way with their parents, but they were that way with the pastors or their leaders. And sometimes in ways that were kind of annoying. I remember I got a call once. I'm on the phone. 
And the student says, hey, can we talk really quick? I go, yeah, is everything okay? He's like, are you by yourself? I go, yeah, what's going on? He's like, ah, I'm really struggling right now. What's happening? Well, I haven't been doing my homework, and my parents are really upset with me. Can you call them and just tell them, like, to get off my back about that? I'm like, what? It, what do you think this is? No, I can't do that. So they were up front sometimes about things like that. But when you would spend time with them, they would always open up about their depression, addictions, temptations, suicidal thoughts, the divorce happening at home with their family, abuse in their life. And you would just realize the world is still really broken. Like I think we can look back at this and we can think to ourselves, well, we have better technology, better health care, better government. But the question is, is the world the way it's supposed to be? Like right now, anyone you ask that to, anyone would say no. No matter their religious beliefs, political alignment, sexual orientation, ethnicity, everyone would say no. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Why? The existence of the things that are revealed through the opening of these seals are still in play today. There is war. War out there. War with people that are close to us. War in our own souls. There is consistent division in the world. There is famine. There are people that we can see constantly that do not have enough of what they need. There is sickness that leads to death. I think all of us probably have unique opinions about COVID. But the one thing we could agree on is real people really died. There are natural disasters. Think about Hawaii. The fire literally destroying towns. There are Christians around the world still being persecuted. There is brokenness in the world and everyone can see it. Is the world the way it's supposed to be? I think the answer for everyone would be no. But the questions that follow up would reveal things about where people place their hope. The first question is, what's the world supposed to be like then? I still think people would agree with this. Most people would say, well, we should have equality and love and happiness. There should be freedom and fulfillment, no sickness, no death. Everyone should have what they need. I think people would agree with this. But then the question underlying all of this is, how do we get there? And I think this is the moment where people would start disagreeing with each other. Josh mentioned this last week, but some people answer this through pleasure or freedom. Some people answer this through politics. I think one of the main ways people try to get there in the Western world is project self. Like as long as me and mine are getting better, then we're good. I think of this commercial I just saw. It was a BetterHelp commercial. And I just want to say before, I really am a big fan of therapy and counseling. I'm just talking about the commercial in itself. There's a man sitting in his car and he's having a therapy session on the phone. And uh, the therapist on the phone is encouraging him and you can see him being affirmed through her. And then the commercial ends and words come up on the screen. And on the screen it says, find your fill in the blank in therapy. And then they start filling in the blank. It says, find your hope in therapy. Find your freedom in therapy. 
Find your truth in therapy. Find yourself in therapy. Now, this is not really a comment about therapy. It's more of a comment about how I think many of us can go to trying to figure out how we could get our money right and our wholeness and our success and our own influence and our power. If we could get those right, then the world will be fixed. But no matter how much of that that we accrue for ourselves, the world is still broken. And I think this hits whenever we see anyone that has a lot of power fall or pass away. Think about when, I was, just thinking, I was asking a lot of people this week, do you remember where you were when Kobe and his daughter passed away? Oh, yeah, I remember exactly when that happened. Like, when I saw the text from my wife, it was like, oh, my gosh. So many people say, I, I thought he was, like, invincible. And when we see that happen, we realize no matter how much power we get ourselves, the world still has the reality. It's broken. Josh encouraged us last week with this truth. Who could fix this? Who could fix this world? Last week we talked about that. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the only one. I'm talking to somebody this week that's not a believer. I asked them all these questions. I said, how do we get there? How do we get to the world the way the, way the world's supposed to be? They say, we can't. God has to come down and fix this. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, they weren't even a believer. That's what they said. I was like, yeah, I, I think that we know the only one that could fix this is Jesus himself. But there's a question that the text asked this week that's different. Let's look together at verse 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. This is after the first six seals are opened. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question. And who can stand? Who can stand? Who can stand in this broken world? Who can stand in the middle of famine and persecution? Who can stand in a world filled with war? Who can stand through the wrath of God? And the answer is found in chapter 7. Let's look together. Starting in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. They're holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I want you to see this. I think I underlined it on there. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. So here's this picture. He's seeing uh, more things. There's these angels holding back all these winds that could come and just destroy everything. And they're saying, no, no, don't do that yet. Let me seal all of my people. And what happens? He doesn't see anything. He, he hears something. He hears 144,000. This is not supposed to be a specific number. Rather, it's supposed to be a number of completeness. He hears the complete number of who? The Israelites. Who are the Israelites? Old Testament is God's chosen set-apart people. So what does he hear? He, he hears the complete number of God's set-apart people. But then something happens. 
He says, I hear this. And verse 9 says, after this, I looked. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne. Gosh, I think about this image. He's sitting there and he hears all these Israelites and then he opens his eyes. And what does he see? He sees a black business owner, an old Japanese woman with her grandchildren, a young Mexican boy, a German carpenter, a 50-year-old white mechanic, an Indian mom with her husband and her three kids, a young Democrat, an old Republican, a rich woman and a poor man, all of them standing before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with loud, like imagine hearing this in Spanish and German and English and Swahili and Hebrew. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Who can stand in this broken world? A community of people that have their eyes set on Jesus. A community of people that are distinct from this world. The church. The only ones that can stand in this broken world. The ones that give light to this world filled with despair. Is the community that we get to belong to. If you believe in Jesus, there is a future hope and a present reality of this picture. This is something that we get to look forward to. Like in future terms, for eternity, we will be with this diverse, unique community worshiping God for eternity. And in present terms, we are called to be this community, to cultivate this on earth presently. The picture I get of this is an old story from the 1930s. The 1930s, the Nazi movement was rising to power in Germany. They were taking over in so many different realms there, including the church all the pastors were compromised. So they would be preaching, but they were really puppets to the Nazi movement. Until a man shows up on the scene, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he says, um, I'm not going to deal with this. So he starts a secret seminary in Germany where he's training these young men to follow Jesus and to lead people to follow Jesus. They had this strict schedule where they were praying and reading the word and being trained by him to follow Jesus well. But Dietrich's friends did not like what he was doing. They thought maybe he took it too far. They were nervous for his own life. So one of his friends flies out to Germany to talk him to his senses. When he gets there, he's trying to tell him, hey, you need to come back home. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, hey, I, I want to show you something. So they walk out of the secret seminary that met in this house and they go to these boats and they go across this body of water to the other side of the shore. They go up on a hill and on the hill you can see one of the base camps of the Nazis. They, they were walking around in unison. There's planes landing and, and taking off. They're training together. And he points to them and he says, I want you to notice this. They are intentionally training to build a kingdom of evil and hate into this world. And we are training these men to build a kingdom of love into this world. He points back to the seminary and says, this has to be stronger than that. This has to be stronger than that. Uh, whether we admit it or not, uh, the world is not stagnant. It's like the ocean. 
You sit in the ocean, it's going to take you in a specific direction. The world is consistently and constantly forming and leading people into the way of the world. And for us as the church, we must be intentional to lead people into the way of Jesus. This has to be stronger than that. And I think about the opportunity that our community gets to actually cultivate heaven here on earth in North Phoenix. I think about the shirts that we wear. We have like one shirt for North Mountain. And all it says is, in North Phoenix as it is in heaven. This is the hope and the goal for our community. To step into this challenge and say, we get to be a picture and a light of Jesus in this city. Our small community together. So with that, I'm going to share just a few comments from chapter 7. A few key takeaways as we kind of bring this to a close. Here are the few key takeaways with a comment on each. The first one is this. We are called to be a community of unity in a world of division. Verse 9 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I just want you to think about the world. Politics, race, religion, economics. We live in a world of constant division about things. It doesn't help that much of our news and information is tailored to fit the opinions we already have, building more of a separation. And we get a unique opportunity in where we are planted. I think about the way Josh described it. We have a little contextual profile for where we're planted. He described this area like a tapestry. It's like a quilt. There are all these different pockets of different sorts of people woven together. They're touching, but they're not interconnected in the relationship as God calls us to. And we get the opportunity to actually change some of that. I think about my own experience. I went to St. Louis High School, which is like five minutes from here. And I had a unique experience. I'm black and Mexican, but I'm like kind of racially ambiguous. And I also had like AP classes. So I'm sitting there. I had the white friends, black friends, Mexican friends. I had rich friends, poor friends. But I watch all of them not really interact with each other. Like even in the schools that bring these people together, the closest they probably get are like athletics and theater and those moments. But never do they come together saying we're all united by this one thing. And for us, we get the opportunity to have people that don't look like us, that don't think like us, that don't act like us, to all worship the same Savior together. And the world out there can look at our little building at the corner of this strip mall and say, what in the world? I just saw a Democrat and a Republican walk in there. What the? What did I just see like black people and white people and Mexican people? What? What's going on in there? I, wait, that guy definitely looks rich. And I, I think they might be poor. Like, what's happening in there? Like, what a picture to the world to say that we get to gather each week and display a type of unity that the world doesn't get to experience. The second one is this. We are called to be a community of holiness in a world of immorality. Verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
So the, the word holiness just means set apart. We get to be set apart from the world and show them a new way of life. The first thing that makes us set apart is not us earning anything. We are all equally at the same level with the world at first. The things that make us clean is that we actually take our robes and wash them in the blood of Jesus. And then after that, we get to live in obedience to him, displaying to the world a new way of life. I think about the things that drive and lead the world. John Tyson says it well. Sex, money, and power are the idolatrous trinity that defines our culture's ethic and vision. I think of it this way. It's, it's like pleasure, freedom, and control. I think of what Josh said. The phrase of the world is, nobody tells me what to do. And we get to step in and say, Jesus tells me everything to do. I live in obedience and follow him anywhere. This is the image that I see. It's from the old church. Tim Keller says it this way. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christian came along and gave practically nobody their body. And they gave practically everybody their money. Like what if we just lived so unique from the world? People were like, what? is guiding them to live that way. Why do they always give their money away? Why are they always kind? Why are they serving our area and our neighborhood? What if we were able to help this neighborhood grow to be better because of our holiness and obedience to Jesus? And more than that, when we mess up, which we will, what if we show the world a new way through repentance and confession to a God that is willing to forgive because of the work Jesus has done. The world has no access to that apart from seeing a community that is following Jesus well. The last one is this, a community of fulfillment in a world of discontentment. Verses 16 and 17, these people shall hunger no more, thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Our world is led by the desire of more and new. We have endless content on a daily basis. We always want the new things. Cars, phones, clothes. We're driven by new and possessions. The problem is the endless accumulation of more does not fulfill the part of us that needs hope. What we can do as believers is intentionally live simple lives where we don't need to accumulate endless amounts of fill in the blank, but we can build deep wells of trust in Jesus. And even through our simple lives, we can still have joy so that people can say, they don't have close to as much as I do, but they have so much joy that I wish I could have. That people would go, what are their simple lives filled with the joy of Jesus? Now, the only way that a community can get to these places of unity, of fulfillment, of holiness, is for them to set their eyes completely on Jesus. We need to be a community that sets our eyes on Jesus, the true king. Verse 10, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The world is consistently placing their eyes on false hopes. Our nation, self-advancement, a big platform, money. And we have to be a community that sets our hope completely on Jesus. 
to be like the Moravians who prayed for a hundred years. We need to be these people that people say their trust is in something outside of themselves. I want to trust in something like that. We are called to be a community of hope in a world of despair. The world is broken for the original readers and for us. But we get to be a picture of hope and a light to the world as we follow Christ. Here's just the one thing I will leave us with. I really do think that those things can become a reality in our community. But I think it doesn't start with us just trying harder. I think it starts with us sincerely praying. Not just thinking about these things, but going to God consistently and asking God, would you work beyond us to create something special in this place? Would you work beyond us to bring people to this church that are broken in need of hope? Would you work beyond us to make this a place of unity and diversity in a world that thirsts for that? Would you work beyond us to create holy people that display your goodness, Jesus? Would you fulfill us, Christ? We must go to prayer together. Imagine if our church, all of us, were to go to God and say, God, would you make that a reality? How would God respond? With that being said, let's just go to him right now. Let's pray to him as we go back into worship. Uh, God, we don't, we don't need too much reminder that the world is broken. I, I think that a lot of us can see it and can feel it in our own lives. But God, what we do need is we need you to step into our lives. First, I just pray for all of us individually in our own lives that you would step in and you would build hope in our own hearts. Would you remind us in our lives of the hope we have in you, Jesus, that you are going to return. But even now as we wait, you promise you will never leave us. God, would you remind us of that? And through that, would you build a confidence in all of us to love the people in this community well? God, would you, would you make something here, a, a people of unity, a people of holiness and fulfillment that displays something glorious to the world? As they look into this church and as we go out into the world, would people see something different about us? God, I just pray that we, through your power, would live in such a way that people can look and say, there is something different. Who are these people? How can I be part of that? God, would you lead this in our lives? We love you so much. Amen.